0: Welcome to the Support Automation Show, a podcast by Capacity. Join us for conversations with leaders in customer or employee support who are using technology to answer questions, automate processes, and build innovative solutions to any business challenge. I'm your host, Justin Schmidt. Good afternoon, Rick DeLisi. Welcome to the Support Automation Show. Where does this podcast find you? I'm at my home right now, my home office, my work from home location, which is Ashburn, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Love it, shout out to all of our East Coast listeners. Rick joins us, you are an author, you're also a lead research analyst at Galea. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background, how you got to be an author and the lead research analyst at Galea and what Galea does, and um, I think that'd be a great jumping off point for the rest of our conversation.
1: Yeah, I've been studying the world of customer service and customer experience for the better part of the last two decades, and specifically the psychology of service interactions. What goes on inside a person's mind when they're in the middle of trying to contact some company for a service issue? How do those dynamics play out? What can we learn about how people are acting and reacting and what are the changes in behavior that we've seen, even over just the last couple of years? Some number of years ago, I wrote a book. or I was part of a team that wrote a book called The Effortless Experience, which caught a lot of traction in the customer service area, specifically noting the connection between customer effort and long-term customer loyalty. Lots of lessons learned there, many of which formed the foundation of GLIA, which is the leading provider of digital customer service solutions, primarily for financial institutions.
0: Love it. I think you're particularly suited to answer this question. And I'm very very interested in what you're about to say. I start every interview with this question and this is where we'll start with you. And that is, when you hear the phrase support automation, what does that mean to you?
1: Well, obviously it could be interpreted in a number of ways, but it does seem as if As the world becomes more digital and as automation becomes a bigger part of our everyday lives, it's about creating opportunities for people to get the support they need without going through the laborious process of having to speak to multiple people or being handed off from one person to another to get what they need. It feels in today's world like the vast majority of us are very comfortable with using automated solutions
0: if it's the fastest, easiest way to get what we need or the help we require. Let's pull on that thread a little bit because I think when you talked about your work with the effortless experience and you had mentioned the sort of relationship between customer effort and customer satisfaction, in my head immediately I thought, oh, those are probably like strongly inversely correlated. But then I started thinking about like in a marriage... (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, an interpersonal relationship, that's not necessarily the the case, right? Like there's effort needs to be made to get the... So I'm curious if you could maybe speak to a little about that relationship and then also how the digitization of customer experience and some of the automation things you alluded to, like how that is come into maybe change that a little bit. I'd love to hear your perspective on both what that relationship is and then how it's evolved as technology has made its way into the, that relationship.
1: So the whole idea of customer effort and using customer effort as a metric, the customer effort score, which was first revealed in our book, sounds like, and to us at first, we thought it was mostly about making things easier for people, what customers have to do. So customer effort, when it comes to the do side of effort, would be what customers have to do to get their issues resolved, how hard it is to do those things, how many things they have to do, how long it takes to do those things. That's what effort sounds like, and that's what we thought at first. But as we began to explore customer effort more deeply, what we discovered is what customers have to do only forms about one third of their impression of the effort that was required to resolve an issue. The other two thirds, probably not a huge surprise, is how did that whole experience feel? Did it feel like the company was making it easier for me? Did it feel like the company was on my side? Did it feel like they were advocating for me? Did it feel as if they were doing what they could to get me to the other side of the issue I have in the fastest, easiest possible way? So the feel side of effort turns out to be far more important even than the do side. Mm. That certainly plays out in today's digital world. The vast majority of us, anytime we have any kind of an issue requiring support or customer service, go first and foremost to a website or app. Our data shows about 84% of customers go first to a digital property. Then the question becomes, are they gonna be able to resolve their issue fully in the digital channel that they first chose? In some cases, the answer is yes. And when that happens, When a customer is presented with a self-service or self-support solution that's right there on their screen and easy to access, that's a beautiful, low effort, high loyalty experience. But we both know that especially when it comes to service, there's a lot of issues that can't be fully resolved in digital. And so what happens then? And we all know what happens then. You, as a customer, have to stop everything you were doing and start all over again by finding and then dialing a phone number and going through the whole IVR process and the whole authentication process all over again for a second time leading inevitably
0: to a high effort experience yeah yeah the classic speak to an agent yes speak representative to an agent. yeah we've all Zero. said that. yeah yeah <laughs> no one's ever said that word with a smile on their face no that's that's exactly right and it sets up this Unfair, sort of asymmetric um, interaction with the agent on the other side, right? Because that person picking up the phone, like they haven't just had some shitty experience where they didn't get what they want resolved, right? They're just doing their job. So, like you, like the, there's an immediate sort of defensiveness or immediate you know, whatever it is that that goes into the conversation with kind of the wrong energy. And it's interesting when you say like the two-thirds of that effort are um, sort of the feel. And I think that feel and that emotional connection that companies make with their customers is something where that's best managed sort of across the buyer journey and across the touch points that we have with organizations, right? It's not just that interaction with the agent when for whatever reason you have to gracefully hand off to a human. It's the brand experience up to that point. One thing that I think is interesting about what Glia does and, you know, we do a lot of similar work here. So I think we're both qualified to speak on this topic is the interactions beyond simply the chat or the phone call, right? So like I know co-browsing is a big part of the Glia platform. How do you view the intersection of these different types of support and customer experience technologies, right? Like it's not just the IVR and, you know, the agent call routing and all that stuff, right? It's, it's the CRM, the order history, co-browsing or session replay data or, you know, a AI versus a chat, all the different stuff that we have available. How can leaders manage all those different pieces of technology and the intersection of them and still provide the room for that emotional connection that makes up two-thirds of the effort that you've mentioned? In my experience of working with hundreds of service and support leaders, and by no means am I
1: blaming anyone for this, but the deeper you get into that profession, the harder and harder it is to truly be customer-centric. You know, every company in the world says we're, you know, completely dedicated to our customers. We're obsessed with our customers. We're all about our customers. And in reality, the vast majority of work being done by service and support leaders is internal systems, Mm -hmm. technology, people issues, budgeting concerns. And it becomes harder and harder to do the most important thing when it comes to being customer centric, and that is. To think like your customers. Mm. If you spend a lot of time thinking about your customers, you're really not being customer centric. But if you start to put yourself in the customer's shoes, remember, in the vast majority of situations, the customer doesn't want to have the issue that they're having. It's an interruption to their lives. Their number one goal is just to get back to where they were before the issue came up in the first place. So thinking about channels or even thinking about technology, that's not what the customer's doing. The customer just wants their problem to be over with as fast and as easily as possible. You know, one big difference between marketing and service and support is that in the world of marketing, part of your job is to increase mind share, to try to create the opportunity for your customers and prospects to be thinking about you more often. But in service and support, isn't the goal really to create the opportunity for the customer to stop thinking about you? The minute your problem is over, it's been fully resolved, and now you're back to normal, it's almost as if the best outcome would be, you don't think about the problem ever again, as if it never happened in the first place. Right. But the higher the degree of effort required for the customer to get their issue resolved, the more they are thinking about not just your company, but the problem. So the key then becomes, what can companies do to create the type of experience for each individual customer that has them back up on their feet, back to the rest of their lives, and create the minimal impression.
0: Mm. And is that minimal impression, that frictionless experience, it's, it, it's interesting when you say that the first thing that popped into my head is like the famous adage and optimization that Google famously, you know, they've changed a little bit as they've, the librarian has become more of the lib- the book, but like you spend the, uh, Google's successful when you spend the least amount of time on google.com as possible, right? Like you, you've type whatever it is you're looking for, you click on whatever it is that that answered you, or got you what you're looking for, and you don't go back to Google until you need something else. Things have changed as they started having their own, you know, travel listings and shopping listings, and now they're wanting to spend more time on the domain. But the I think the in, initial impetus is similar to what you're saying in that, like, the best customer... Journey. The best customer support and customer service journeys are the ones that either a don't have to happen at all, or b if they do are kind of over before you sort of even realize what happened. Is pivoting to the title of the book um, behind you in your Zoom background there? Digital customer service is that speed to satisfaction part of what makes true digital customer service, or am I seeing this slightly differently? I would love to to unpack digital customer service and what that is truly? Yeah, the term speed or speed to resolution is used
1: frequently by those of us who are on the professional side. But one of the things I've learned is that speed, as measured by a stopwatch or a clock, is greatly overrated. Hmm. You know, if a company was to measure the difference between a four-minute interaction and an eight-minute interaction, that's a two X difference, but the vast majority of customers couldn't tell you the difference between four minutes and eight minutes. But what they could tell you is, did I have to repeat myself? Did I have to take multiple steps just to get what I needed? Did I have to start all over again? Did somebody ask me a bunch of questions that I'd already answered previously on the website as if I'd never been there before. So the number of minutes is way less important than the degree to which the interaction begins
0: and ends with forward motion and in context. Interesting, interesting. And in digital customer service, what is different about being successful in digital customer service versus being successful in customer service 20 years ago? Well, again, the vast majority of people who have a problem go first to a website or app. So that's the biggest difference. That's
1: been increasing over the years. And certainly that spike has gone upward ever since the beginning of the pandemic. We've all experienced that. We all now live on our screens all day, every day. So the question becomes, can a customer completely resolve their issue on their own screen? Now, here's the thing. Self-service has moved forward in leaps and bounds. There's so many more things that we can do with all the companies that we do business with in self-service and in an automated way. But you and I both know there's always going to be some issues that require some degree of live intervention. Mm. But in our book, we describe the DCS model, which Glia is a creator of, which always starts on a customer screen, whether it's a laptop, a tablet, or a cell phone, a smartphone. And if a customer can completely resolve their issue in self-service, that's a great and perfect experience. But if live help is needed, it doesn't have to occur through a separate phone call. That live interaction occurs right on the customer screen where that customer started their whole journey. So again, imagine you get, somewhere down the road of trying to resolve your issue or getting the information you need. Now you realize I'm going to need to speak to somebody, but what if the somebody popped up right on your screen and the somebody already knew who you were because you've already been authenticated in the system and already had a strong idea of what your issue is based on your browsing history or your digital body language and was actively working to resolve your issue before the agent or representative even says, hello. That's the big difference. Yeah. And that's what it takes to create a five-star effortless experience in today's digital first world. Yeah.
0: It's the, uh, I'm going to work in a weird topical analogy here, but, um, you know, we had pretty much, I don't know if you're you're a fan of the game, but pretty much the best weekend of NFL football ever. Uh, Every minute of it. Same here, like best four games of football ever, but You know, the perfect pass is always the one that is, that leads the receiver and land, you know, hits them right in the numbers. And that is what some of this digitization, digital transformation CX has done is enable the agents to sort of perfectly receive the handoff to your point where, you know, you're not taking a, you're not starting over you know just because you said to switch channels or the uh, automation failed you, you used a really interesting term and that was uh digital is it digital body language on screen yeah. body language that was great stuff double click on that for me sure so Digital body language is simply understanding what has
1: this person been doing during this session? Where have they been on your site? Have they started to engage in any processes or filling out any forms or clicking any selections? What does it look like they're trying to accomplish? And so one of the graphics that we use at Glia is that red circle with a slash through it, the universal no symbol. And in the middle of the circle are the words How may I help you? Because in the DCS model, the agent never has to ask, who are you? And how may I help you? Because they already know both of those things. And when a customer is greeted by a person on their own screen, who already knows who they are and has a strong idea of what they
0: need, it changes everything about the way the whole interaction feels. Yep makes a ton of sense and this again reminds me of, of a famous googleism and that is the concept of pogo sticking where if you search for something and you click a link and you hit back the browser's back button and click on a different link you're, you're pogo sticking back to the results and it's a signal to google that like the results that they have shown are not necessarily what that user wanted for that particular query right that's a artifact of the digital journey that v- they incorporate. And you're exactly right. In a modern web first world, especially if your product lives on your website, right? This is key. You can can see all the artifacts of what they're doing, right? You know, they logged in, you know, they checked their order history. You know, they looked at the return, the return and whatever policy, right? You know, they've looked at another size of the same thing, right? That was in that order. Chances are when they hit talk to us, like they're going to want to, you know, exchange that for a different size, right? And if you have access to that data, there's no reason not to sort of bundle that up and put that together for the agent when that does happen. One thing that also really interests me about some of the stuff that you've done in your work and this digital, the digital transformation inside of CX that I was just really curious to ask you about was... Do you see any particular segments of the market that have done a particularly good job of managing that digital transformation versus those that have not? Whether that's like by industry, by businesses, B2B versus B2C, like, is there any, if we're sitting in the marketplace as support leaders, like, what's a category that gets this really right in general that we can model some of our, um, business after. Yeah, this is unfair. And we write about it in our book. But
1: in many cases, it just comes down to the age of the company. Any company that is less than 14 years old, and I mentioned that specifically, because that's how long smartphones have been around. Any company that's less than 14 years ago old is probably much more likely To get digital transformation, right? Because for many of those companies, it isn't even a transformation at all. You know, if you invented a company right now today, of course, your entire digital platform would be the basis of your entire interface. You probably wouldn't even have a call center. Why would you? If you could, you'd resolve everything through a digital channel. But the vast majority of companies that are older than 14 years old began their life as a service or support organization with a telephony-based model, and now, through trying to modernize or trying to digitize, have ended up somewhere in the middle of some hybrid model We call it the bolt-on model, starting with a telephony-based call center service operation or support operation, and then adding digital features and functionality on top of that. By the way, that's better than not adding digital features, but in no way does that replicate the digitally native companies that invented themselves with today's customers and customer behavior in mind.
0: Yeah, it's one thing for... Casper mattresses to, you know, undergo a operation to embrace digital customer service, right? It's an entirely different thing for the Bank of England or the Bank of Scotland or something that's been around (laughs) for 400 years to, to sort of unravel all that and move into a digital world. One of the things that comes up from time to time on this show, and we haven't, completely gracefully made our way here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump cut a little bit, but I'm the host, I get to do that. <laughs> and that is automation and digital tooling inside of organizations. Like you're right, as a consumer, some you could argue, and I think you could argue, you could, you, we could take either side of the argument that like, as a consumer, you don't necessarily care if you're talking to a chatbot or a person, you don't care if you're, you know, you just want your order resolved you want your issue resolved, you want to be moving on to the next thing. But whether or not that's true, one thing that's definitely true is that the people that work in the customer success service and experience roles, digitization and AI especially can be seen as a threat to what they're doing, right? I mean, obviously robots inside of factories and assembly lines, displaces, it displaces work and has been for a while in the knowledge work, you know, I'm using scare quotes here, white collar environment of a lot of this stuff. We haven't necessarily seen a complete automation displace, you know, completely displacing people yet, but like, it's easy to kind of get there. My question to you is how can leaders manage some of that, like, Manage the fear, maybe manage some of the trepidation, get buy in from their their team when they're bringing in some of these digital customer service and automation practices. So, one of the things that we write about
1: in the book is that while it seems to make logical sense to be fearful of automation or to feel like the robots are taking our jobs, that's a common sentiment. We just don't believe it's true. And here's why what automation should be used for in service and support is to take care of easy simple informational requests and when that's the case that relieves the human beings of having to answer the same repetitive questions over and over again there's no satisfaction in that that's not fun if you work for a bank answering 400 calls a day and 300 of them are uh what's your routing number there's no joy to be gained out of a simple informational exchange. That's what bots are great at. Bots and AI are, are perfect at answering questions to which the response is the simple conveyance of information. Mm-hmm. When is my package shipping? When is my delivery date? You know, How can I get new checks sent to me simple things that can be automated, relieve the human beings of having to do those same repetitive tasks over and over again. So what that frees people up to do is to do what people do best. And that is have a human connection with another person. And so In the DCS model, agents are relieved of the burden of having to do authentication and initial issue diagnosis and filling out of forms and calling up the customer's information. All those things are done automatically, which puts the agent then in a position of being much more like an advocate or even a teacher of customers. I, as the agent, am not here to serve you. I'm here to help you become more digitally independent to, in the case of co-browsing, show you how you can resolve some issues on your own. You know, when an agent and a customer involved are, are engaged in a co-browsing session, so both the agent and the customer are looking at the customer screen, and again, the screen meaning just that company's digital properties, not their whole browser history, but just what they're doing on your site or on your app, instead of doing something for the customer, the game then becomes... Let me show you how you can do this. When that happens, it's not only a way better experience for the agent because it's more fun, it's more fulfilling, it's more human, But it also gives both the agent and the customer this feeling of satisfaction, like we really accomplished something today, not just to solve your immediate issue, but to help you feel better and smarter about yourself. That's a great feeling. Mm. People who get into service primarily do so because they like helping people. They get a satisfaction out of helping others. But when you can
0: help a person become smarter about themselves, you've really done something. Yeah. That's, I like that when you make a feel, when you make a person feel smarter about themselves, you've really done something. And that, that's a part of change management, you know, if we get into, you know, business school terms that a lot of people don't think spend quite, there's two things that people don't spend enough time on, in my opinion, when it comes to implementing technology inside of an organization. One is like really thinking through the change management, even if it's at a small company and you're going to like, okay, we're going to get, you know, we're going to, we're going to get this payroll tool whatever right like well now you've got to train everyone how to log into it and like the you know the place to visit to to see the stub is going to be different than the last application you had and you got to deal with the rigmarole of that the other thing is that sometimes we bring we the desire to bring in technology to fix a problem overrides the common sense of like, hey, let's map out the process. Let's like work backwards, you know, start with why to quote Simon Sinek. Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? Let's lay out the actual workflow that that we're looking to, you know, transform and, and bring, you know, technology in somewhere. And you might find that, you know, you have a good old fashioned process design problem more than you have a technological gap somewhere, right? so you're, but you're right, part of the journey to bringing technology into a support organization and getting that well adopted is to show and make clear that this is going to make you better at what you do. And if it's not going to make your agents and your staff better at what they're doing, then you're probably kind of looking at the wrong tool in the first place, right? Because if they're successful, the customer successful and that's ultimately what matters here. This has been a this has been a wonderful conversation, Rick, and I can, I can hear listen to you um, wax philosophical about digital customer service forever. But thinking about the future, and I know you guys just finished this book, so like your brain's probably just chock full of where things are headed. Based on you know twenty years ago when you got into this business, and you know I know you spent time at. Um, um, one of the big analyst firms, and you know, you've know, you also been an author for a long time. So you've been thinking about this for a long time. Where, What excites you the most about the future of support automation, digital customer service, and kind of where we're heading? I've been
1: thinking a lot lately about how we humans use the telephone, and more importantly, how we don't use the telephone. Think about this for just a second. I don't want to try to guess your age, but you're probably old enough to remember movie phone remember movie phone oh yeah calling a phone number to find out what time various motion pictures are playing at your local theater if you describe that to an 18 year old kid they'd look at you like you had lobsters coming out of your ears that just seems absurd i'm old enough to remember when we used the telephone for time and temperature can you imagine calling a phone number today to find the time and the weather forecast? We used to use the phone for sports scores. Remember sports phone oh, yeah. for stock quotes. <laughs> I went out with a girl once who used the telephone to find out her horoscope, which <laughs> didn't always work out that well for me. Just saying. But the way we use the telephone is so drastically different. We don't use the telephone anymore for information. Or for service? When's the last time you called an airline to make a reservation or called a hotel to make a reservation? We just don't use the phone in that way anymore. And yet, still to this day, every year, U.S. companies alone receive over a billion customer service phone calls. So what's the future of service and
0: support? It's a future that doesn't involve the telephone at all. I love it. That's the kind of like stake in the ground thought leadership that that we come to this podcast for, Rick. So in a world where there is no telephone, now I want to be very clear. You don't mean mean an absence of voice communication. You mean- That's the biggest myth. Uh, That is the number one myth of digital
1: customer service is that it means eliminating human voice-to-voice contact forevermore. Now, the reality is many issues don't require Any live contact. And again, correct. A self-service interaction that completely resolves my issue in the fastest and easiest way, that's an effortless experience. But in a situation where it makes sense to talk to a person, either because I'm not entirely sure what I want or how to describe it, or some degree of diagnosis or iterations required, I'm not aware of all my options, or even more importantly, I'm not confident that I've done everything exactly the way I was supposed to and that I'm going to get exactly what I want. When the need arises for human contact, if it happens in the context of the interaction that I was already having on my own screen and I can have a human to human conversation without having to stop what I was doing and start all over again on the telephone, that's a low effort digital experience. And that's what our book's all about.
0: Love it. Yeah, I, I do remember Movie Phone. I turned 41 here in, in, in about a month. Uh, and it's funny, as you, you were saying that, I, I specifically remember it's just really interesting thinking about this. I had, I remember calling Columbia House, you know, to, to like, because I had an issue. You know, I got my 10 CDs for a dollar or whatever, and, I, and there, there was something wrong with, with it. I remember calling Columbia House, and this was in 1990, whatever um but 94 93 95 somewhere around there and like you know going through this whole thing and you know then like you wait two weeks or whatever and then the you know the right cd gets sent to you and then not too long ago like last week two weeks ago maybe i forgot to cancel a spotify trial i'm I'm an apple music guy not a spotify guy but i took three months of free spotify because like that's to see what's you know if it's worth switching and i forgot to um cancel the thing in like five taps of my thumb I resolved my sort of issue with the Spotify subscription and like it might have been 15 or 20 seconds of my day, right? And it was done. And contrast that with, you know, 25 years, 27 years prior, you know, getting on the horn with uh, Columbia House and cont- speaking to someone on the phone and like writing shit down and doing all this stuff that we just don't do anymore. I like that the phone is going to go the way of the dodo with, with customer support and the true digital customer service ecosystem, your channel switching and medium switching, but you're remaining on the same single screen. I love it, that's great stuff. This has been a hell of a conversation, Rick. I really appreciate your time. Let's end with my quick fire round that I end every interview with. I still haven't come up with a catchy name for this, but as long time listeners to it's ridiculous, as people who listen to the show realize part of the brand of the quick fire round is me talking about how it doesn't have a brand yet. But, um, <laughs> and I'm gonna give you a layup here. Actually, no, I'm gonna challenge you on this. The question is usually what book do you most often recommend to people? You don't get to choose one of your own though. What's a book that you often recommend to people in this space?
1: Is Fred, Fred Reicheld's The Ultimate Question? Hmm. For anybody who's been around NPS, if you haven't read that book, you probably don't understand NPS nearly as well as you think you do. So many companies use NPS, and they use it incorrectly, according to Reichheld himself. Net Promoter Score isn't really about recommendation or advocacy, even though the question is, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend or colleague? Hmm. NPS is really about your own personal loyalty to that company. And so what Reichel learned is that if we just ask you, hey, how likely are you to remain loyal to our company, your answer to that question isn't very well correlated with your future loyalty behaviors. But if we put you in the mindset of thinking about how your actions and opinions influence other people, you're more likely to be more transparent about your own loyalty. And so NPS is very much just about that person and how likely they are to continue wanting to do business with your company. And more importantly, it was never meant as a dashboard number. You know, how many companies are so prideful? Our NPS went up from a plus 15 to a plus 25. First of all, if you understand the math uh, of the system from minus 100 to plus 100, a 10-point jump could be accomplished in a thousand different ways. And so the number itself isn't meaningful, but the point of asking the question, how likely are you to recommend us gives you clues as a company as to who you ought to be doubling back with to learn more about what happened during their experience that made it memorable, positive or negative. So NPS, much like the customer effort score is designed more as a detector of potential future disloyalty rather than as a single metric or some kind of a
0: scoreboard system to tell you how well you're doing. Love it, and we'll um, give the answer that um, if I would if I would have let you promote your own books, give um, another book that that we recommend here is digital customer service as well as the effortless experience. You've been around. As a you know, your time as an analyst and time as an author, you've talked to a lot of, you've talked to a lot of of leaders and a lot of like impressive people and a lot a lot of high output individuals. One of the things we do here at Capacity that, um, in fact, I'm going to be doing it in a couple. By the time this episode airs, it already I'd have already done it. But I do an annual productivity tips webinar rundown. I think it's going to be like 40 something this year. I'm going to to have my work cut out for me, but I'll just drink a lot of coffee. I'll get through it. Um, But of all the different like productivity tips and hacks and best practices and stuff you've collected over the years, what's one that has really stuck with you that you'd recommend people try to adopt?
1: So as long as companies are going to continue to operate a phone-based system, Mm -hmm. think about where your phone number is for customers to be able to call, wherever that is on your website. And by the way, that's a whole debate. Should your phone number be right there on the home page? Should it be one click deep? Should you try to hide your phone number? That's a whole interesting discussion, but no matter where your phone number is, on your website or app, shouldn't right next to your phone number, shouldn't there be a little box with let's say three buttons? And the box says, Hey, you're certainly free to call us, but if you're about to call us for any of these three things, click here and we'll resolve it for you right now without having to make that phone call. Mm. So one of the rules of customer service, and tell me if this is true in your world as well, we call it the 80 20 rule. 80% of your incoming volume is typically taken up by the top 20 issues. Yeah. So Shouldn't the easiest things that a customer could resolve entirely on their own while they're on the website
0: be right there next to the phone number? That's a great thought. I might even just do that as a, just in my own sort of calendar and time management, right? <laughs> my, first anyone ever emails me a question, I'm going to auto respond with, does this have to do with like, Right. It. Um, yeah, it's it. like the ultimate out of office message, so. <laughs> exactly. But exactly. be aware of that. Now you become replaceable, so: Well, I always tell everyone who works for me, if you can optimize yourself out of a job, then you're going to get promoted. but um, <laughs> If you could recommend any like community, LinkedIn group, um, you know any sort of place for people in the CX world to, to gather and share knowledge, what's a good one? We were
1: mentioning before, because you live in St. Louis, the work of Shep Hyken, and Shep is the most prolific author in customer service and customer experience. Jump aboard his train. He's been thinking about the psychology of customer interactions his whole lifetime, and nobody is better at humanizing this profession and at helping each of us understand the psychology of everyday people better than him. So. Jump aboard the Shep, hike and train sometime, and you will come away feeling like
0: you understand people better than you ever have before. Yeah, I'm going to have to uh, track him down in a Cardinals game or something. And, yeah. Um, love it. Uh, Rick, this has been a hell of a conversation. I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, on our way out, uh, if people want to know more about you, some of your books or where should they go to find out that information?
1: Yeah, the Glia website is full of information and videos and case studies and white papers and so full of interesting stuff for anybody who's in this space. So it's just glia, G-L-I-A dot com. And our book is Digital Customer Service and the book web page is com.
0: Rick DeLisi, thank you so much for your time and coming on the Support Automation Show and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. It was truly an effortless experience. The Support Automation Show is brought to you by Capacity. Visit capacity.com to find everything you need for automating support and business processes in one powerful platform. You can find the show by searching for Support Automation in your favorite podcast app. Please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Capacity, thanks for listening.